Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. What began as studying the shapes of the Earth has led us to the classification of all possible shapes of surfaces. This has even helped us to get a better understanding of knots, these one-dimensional objects, using two-dimensional tools. We now turn back to the Earth again to study more about its properties, but this time our interests are in its wind flows, how the currents of wind flow on the Earth's surface. We talk about how we can model the flow of the wind and how the shape of the Earth itself dictates the properties of how the wind flows behave. We ask the following question. It might seem like a silly question, but it's quite deep, it turns out, and not obvious to figure out. At any instant in time, is there a place on Earth where there is no wind? Is that even possible? Must wind always be flowing at every point? Or can there be a place on Earth where there is no wind? Well, we begin with the study of something very different than what we've been attacking and looking at, which are called vector fields. So far, we've only been studying static objects, things that don't move, a particular genus 2 surface, a particular trefoil. And now we are going to study movement. Now, vector fields appear in the world of analysis, vector field, a field of movement. Remember how we've broken down mathematics into three groups. Algebra, which studies structure. Geometry, which studies shape, the world we're in. And analysis, which studies change. Now, vector fields belong in the world of differential equations and calculus, because that's the world that measures these changes. It fits under the umbrella of analysis. Now, we are going to move from algebraic topology because we've been caring about shapes and topology from an algebraic viewpoint, from a viewpoint of structures of shapes, to analytic topology, which is shapes mixed with change. We're going to switch the lenses in which we're going to look at the world. We're still going to study topology about shapes, but we're going to use a different set of tools, not the tools of structure, but the tools of change, and see what happens when we consider this problem from this perspective. Now, let's look at a classic example coming from differential equations to understand what vector fields are really about. Let's consider a field where owls and mice live. That's all that's happening in this field, the populations of owls and the population of mice. Now, there is a relationship between the number of mice and the number of owls. And here's the way the relationship would be modeled in its population. As the mice population increases, the owl population does as well, because there's more mice for them to eat. Well, as more owls are born and raised, well, they start eating more mice. Well, this causes the mice population to decrease. Well, if the mice population decreases, then there's not enough mice for the owls to eat, so the owl population starts to decrease. And if the owl population starts to decrease, then now more mice can be born, so the, mouse, the mice population starts to increase. So visually, we can take a look at this as the following diagram. Here you see a picture of the mice population increasing and decreasing and then increasing again related to the owl population. So you see the horizontal axis is the mice 
and the vertical axis is the owls. Now notice the owl population is again dependent on the mice population and vice versa. And this is an example of the predator-prey model resulting in a vector field, these collection of arrows that tell you how the mice population and the owl population change as you follow these arrows. If mice increase, then owls increase. And then if owl increase, mice decrease, and on and on and on. Now notice, we picked a generic population to start with, and that's what give, gave us a circle of possibilities. If we picked a different population, a different population of mice, for example, then notice what happens. The same pattern happens, except now you have a bigger circle surrounding this one. The arrows are still flowing. The vector field flows in the same direction. And a bigger circle would give you a different feel, again, surrounding this one. Now, a smaller uh, circle is formed with a different population near the central point. Now, notice as we pick populations closer and closer to the central point, called a fixed point, that there is a stability that ensues between the mice and the owl populations. The central point, this fixed point, is a place of no movement at all. Why is there no movement? The mice population and the owl population are perfectly balanced. There is no change needed because the number of mice being born is exactly compensated with how the owls are eating the mice. So in the mouse owl, in the owl mice example, this is where there is a stability in the system. And these points are also called the zeros of the vector field. This shows a concrete example from nature where vector fields naturally appear here. Now, we've been looking at vector fields on the plane. As you notice, this is an example of these flows on the plane. And now we move to the interplay of vector fields and shapes. Now that we have an intuition of what vector fields are about, let's see what happens when we consider vector fields on surfaces. Well, a natural way to get a vector field is the gradient method. The gradient method imagines that you're just flowing from the top of the surface and gravity pulls the vector field down. Now let's consider examples of this on the sphere. Now think of this as the flow of water on the sphere itself. Let's take a look. Here we see a sphere with a, with a gradient vector field on the sphere. The water is starting at the top of the sphere at North Pole where you'd start pouring the water and the arrows tell you the flow, the flow of the vector field itself as it flows to the South Pole. Now, what if you have uh, a torus, a genus one surface, and I'm, and I'm holding it up vertically. If I have a torus, this example is a little bit more complicated. If I pour the water on top, then the water can travel in two separate ways. I mean, you have a 360 degree way of movement, but there are these two key ways of moving where the water flows on the outside rim, goes directly to the bottom of the torus, or it can flow 90 degrees to that outside flow. It can flow to the inside genus of that torus. And once it gets there, it collect, the water collects and it splits and flows through the other way of the genus, all around that genus. And then it flows again from that point all the way to the end. So there are these two kinds of flows that are happening on this torus. There's the flow that goes right to the bottom and these ones that kind of stop and turn directions and move the other way. Now, if we count the number of zeros, if we count positions where water actually comes to a stop for a little bit, we see on the sphere that there are two zeros because there's the starting point and the ending point where the water begins to flow and the water ends the flow. 
On the torus, we see that there are four zeros. There's the very top of the torus where the flow begins from. And there's the very bottom of the torus where the flow ends in. But there are these two middle points where the flow comes in and stops and then switches directions. Comes in and stops and then switches directions. So you need the vector field comes in and it has to stop there to actually switch. So there's a zero there. There's some stability going on. Now these are places of perfect stability where these zeros are, where we move off of them and we are carried by the flow. Notice what happens. As you come near that stability point, if you come exactly along the direction you're coming, you have to stop to change directions. But if you come not exactly at it directly head on, but a little bit to the side of it, you don't go near that zero point at all, but you come very close and then you turn and then you flow down. Well, what can we say about zeros of vector fields in general? Well, consider different vector fields on the sphere. These are the ones that come from the gradient flow where gravity pulls it down. But let's look at other examples. Here we see three different examples of vector fields on the sphere. The first one is that the flow is flowing left to right. It's going around the equatorial flow of the sphere. So again, we see that here we have two fixed points. We have these two stability points, the North Pole and the South Pole, as the wind or the water flows around the sphere. Here's another example of the sphere. Here there's that one central zero, one central zero of the vector field or a fixed point, and the, the water or the wind flows around that zero all the way till it goes through the long part from the North Pole to the South Pole, and then it spins around this way. Notice this flow is continuous. There's no break in the flow. It beautifully flows from one to the other one. Same thing can be said about the previous example. The flow of wind and water is continuous. But look at this third example. Here, all my flows are gradient flows. Going from the North Pole to the South Pole, the water's flowing, except for this red arrow that's flowing from the South Pole to the North Pole. Now, this is not a vector field because the flow here is not continuous. Things flowing in one direction near it have to also flow towards that direction. You can't have wind all flowing downstream and all of a sudden one gust of wind flowing upstream right in the middle of it without being a swirl, a change of wind in that area. So all these arrows pointing down in the vector field are great as long as you don't have anything coming up immediately there. These have to be continuous flows. Now, these are just a few classic examples of flows on the sphere, and there are numerous ones that we could come up with, and some are extremely complicated flows. Think of all possible wind flow currents of the Earth right now, flowing and changing and some stopping and moving. It's quite complicated. And we, we ask again this question. Does every vector field on the sphere have to have a zero? Does it have to have some place where there's no wind going? Or can we have it so wind is flowing everywhere all the time on the sphere? We have seen examples with places where there are two zeros on the sphere, and we've seen this previous example where there's only one zero on the sphere. Can we be clever enough to have no zeros on the sphere? Is there something about the sphere that governs its properties of zeros? Or are we not being clever enough? Well, to find out, we need to understand the zeros of vector fields a bit better. First, notice that there are different kinds of zeros of vector fields. Consider some classic examples. There's the center of the zero of a vector field. It's like the center of a hurricane, and the flow goes around it. It's called a center. 
obvious reasons. Then there's the source, where from the center point, the flow goes from it. This is the north pole of the sphere and the flow out of it that we talked about earlier. There's the sink, where the flow comes to that fixed point. This is the south pole of the sphere under the gradient vector flow. There are other examples, like the dipole, where there's a center fixed point and the flow goes around on either direction. And there are other examples, like the saddle, where at the center point, flows flow east and west away from it, but the north and south come right towards it. An example of a saddle visually could be something like this, like the saddle of a horse, where you can see the water flowing towards the center of this, you can imagine a torus right here. This is the genus of the torus, with the water flowing in, and the moment it comes to the center, it switches gears and flows east and west again. We have seen all of these on the sphere and the torus. The dipole, for example, shows up in terms of the magnetic flow of a bar magnet. Well, we want to measure these zeros quantitatively other than just walk through pictures. This is what mathematics does. We see something important like these zeros and we want to understand it and quantify it more and go behind the scenes. We did this with knots, we did it with braids and surfaces, and now we want to do it with flows. Now, we define the index of a zero of a vector field as follows. Given a source, here's what we do. Let's take the source as an example that we're going to study with. We draw a small disk, a neighborhood around the zero. And what we do is we choose the topmost point of this disk. And we notice the vector flow direction at this topmost point. Now, as we move around the circle clockwise around this neighborhood I drew, notice how much this vector field changes when we return to where we began. So notice at this source, I'm pointing straight north. Now, as I walk around this circle, notice how my arrows have changed. It's pointing north, and then it rotates. It rotates clockwise. It keeps rotating. Now at the south, I'm pointing straight down. And when I come back again, I've rotated a full 360 degrees clockwise. Thus, my index value is 1. Because as I go clockwise once, I get a whole clockwise turn. In general, each time the arrows turn once clockwise, I give my index value 1 to it. And each time the arrows turn once counterclockwise, I subtract 1 from the index value. Now, let's consider some other examples. Let's look at the sink. Here my arrows are pointing in. So my north part of my circle, my very top, it's pointing down. And as I start going clockwise, this arrow change is actually turning clockwise again. And when I'm all the way in the south, it's pointing straight up. And as I go back to the north again, I have a full clockwise turn. So again, around the sink, my index is also 1, because as I go around, my arrows change a full 360 degrees clockwise. What about the center? Well, you can have a center where the flow flows counterclockwise. And again, if I start at the north and walk around, it flows clockwise around this circle, around this neighborhood. So that's a plus 1. What about a center that flows clockwise around it? Again, if I take my north part and measure the flow direction there and walk around, notice my arrows change a full 360 degrees clockwise again. So for my source, my sink, my centers in both directions, I get value of plus one. Well, what about my dipole or my saddle? Let's take a look at those. For my dipole, if I'm facing the north part of my circle, I face left, right? I'm facing west. And as I start turning clockwise, my arrows turn clockwise very fast because of the dipole movement. If 
by the time I'm at the South Pole, I'm already at a full 360 degrees. And so if I go back again to the North Pole, I've completed two 360 degree clockwise rotations. So my index value is plus two. Now let's look at my saddle. If I'm facing at the north of my saddle, around this local area, small region, a neighborhood around this point, I'm facing straight south. Now as I walk clockwise around this neighborhood, my arrows start turning counterclockwise. So by the time of my south pole, I'm facing north, but I've gone in the counterclockwise direction. So by the time I come to a full 360 degree spin clockwise, my index is negative one because I've spun my dial 360 degrees counterclockwise. So these are the examples we can do to get the index of some zeros. In general, the index measures how wind behaves close to my zero point. It's a mathematical approximation. Of course, notice that my source and my sink and my centers all got value plus one. So it's not a powerful measurement to tell everything apart, but at least it gives you a good measurement to differentiate those values from the dipole or the saddle. Now, another way to calculate the index is to use polygons in a clever way. Instead of drawing circles around my regions, I'm going to focus on drawing polygons around my region. What I want to do is around my sink, let's start with my sink because my arrows are pointing in as an example, around my sink, let me just draw a square. Now instead of drawing a circle around it, I'm going to place this polygonal square around a zero. Now any polygon can be used, I just chose a square as an example. However, the one important fact is that we must make sure that all my arrows point in and or out along each edge. I don't want any arrows being parallel to my edge. So if you ever have any arrows pointing in or out from your, from your zero, you want to make sure you pick a polygon so nothing points parallel to the polygon. Each edge must be measuring something going in or out. And that's easy to do. You can pick any size polygon you want, so you can always do this. So for my square, for example, I'm going to place the, the zero at the center. And notice, if this is a sink, if all my arrows are going in, here's what I do. I place a one, at the number one in the middle of my polygon for my fixed point. And I place a one at any vertex of the polygon if the vector fields point inside the polygon at that vertex. So in my square example, notice that all four corners of my square, I have my arrows pointing in because this is a sink. So I place a plus one values at all four corners. Now I place a minus one along any edge if the vector field points inside the polygon there. Again, for my square example, all four edges are pointing in. So now I place a minus one at every edge. Minus one, minus one, minus one, and minus one. Now what is the index? I've just done this little trick to show you what to do with the center point. You get a plus one. And all the vertices and all the edges get values depending on if it's pointing in. To get the index, we just add up all the numbers inside my polygon. It's that simple. Let's add up all my numbers again. I get one, two, three, four, five positive values, one, two, three, four negative values. So my total index is one, exactly what I got before. Perfect. Now, let's try it for something else. Let's try it for a saddle. Here's my saddle. I'm gonna pick a square again. It's pretty simple to do. Let's try a square and let's see what happens. I put a one inside my saddle at the center of the square because every value that's a zero gets a one for it for free. So my inside guy gets a one. Now my four corners, my four vertices, 
all my arrows, notice, from the flow, they're flowing out. Nothing is flowing inside my square, so none of those guys get any values. What about my four edges? Well, my top and bottom edge, those arrows are pointing in, so I get a minus one for each one of them. On the other hand, my right and left edge, those are flowing out, so I don't get anything. So I have only three numbers in here, the negative one for the top edge, the one in the middle, and the negative one for the bottom. I add it up, my index becomes negative one, exactly what I had before. Let's try one more. Let's take a hexagon and put it around a source. So I put the one in the middle because the one in the middle is always given for free for a zero of a polygon. Now every edge and every vertex, all my arrows are pointing out, so nothing gets a value. Thus the only thing I have inside my polygon is that one that I started off with, and so my index is one, exactly what I did earlier. Notice that the polygon method of finding the index is a discrete version of my continuous version. Remember, the continuous one was about how my clock rotated as I walked around the circle. It's a continuous way of doing it. Discrete version is, means you can break it up and start counting things. For a computer scientist, somebody who wants to calculate things fast, the discrete version is much better because you can plug these finite number of values into a computer easier versus a continuous one, which might be beautiful for mathematicians to study, but might not be easy to compute for a computer. We now show a deep relationship between zeros of vector fields and the shape of the surface the vector field flows on. Now we have seen several vector fields on different surfaces. We looked at vector fields, different ones on spheres, and we looked at vector fields on the torus. But now the vector fields have a different value. They have an index associated to them. They're not just zeros there at those points. They actually have these indices we've given by these calculations. What happens if we add up the indices of all the zeros over my entire surface? Look at this example of this vector field on my sphere. It has two zeros, one at the north and one at the south. But both of these zeros are a center zero. That means I give it a plus one value of my index at top, plus one value of my index in the bottom. And if I add all my indices up, I get a plus two value over my entire sphere. Great. What about this example of a sphere? I have an index on top and an index in the bottom. This is the gradient vector field, like the water flowing from top to bottom. The top point is a source. That's where my water is coming from. I get a plus one. The bottom point is my sink. That gets a plus one. So my total value is two again. Well, what about this one of the sphere where it's a dipole? Remember, it just swirls around from that point all the way down, going from the north to the south pole, coming back up again. It only has one zero, the dipole, but the index of the dipole is two. So my total value over all my zeros is two again. All my spheres have value two. What about my torus? Let's take my torus. Now, let's do the gradient flow from the top to the bottom. The top, now I have four zeros. So the top is a source, plus one. The center one is a saddle. Remember, it comes in and then flows out again. It's exactly like this example we have here. It comes in and flows out again. So here's the saddle at the top of my torus. And then here's the saddle at the bottom of that genus of that torus. And then at the very bottom of this torus is a sink. So I get one source, negative one, negative one for my two saddles, one for my sink. Total value is zero. Well, what about a genus two surface? If you look at the genus two surface and make it flow again from top to bottom, we start with a one. We start with a negative one for that first saddle, negative one for the second saddle, negative one for the third part of the saddle, negative one for the fourth part of the saddle, and one for that sink at the end. Add up all these values, I get negative two. My spheres all give me two, 
My torus gives me zero. My genus two surface gives me negative two. Glory, glory. As you can see, what we're really finding is the Euler characteristic. And this beautiful structure that the Euler characteristic of the surface, that the surface is homeomorphic type, that what it's fundamentally made out of is somehow controlling the indices of my vector fields. Whoa, this stunning result is called the Poincaré-Hoff theorem. Now, for any vector field on a surface S, the sum of the indices of all the zeros of the vector field, no matter what vector field you pick, the sum of the zeros of all the indices must be the Euler characteristic. This is a deep relationship on how the wave flows can move on a surface and is globally governed by the shape of the surface itself. Now, we give a proof of this result right here, live, due to William Thurston. Now, Thurston is a Fields Medal winner, one of the great ones we've talked about earlier, and he's one of the greatest topologists and geometers of the 20th century. We will certainly talk about him more later when it comes to three-dimensional objects. But first, let's actually look at his proof. The thing we do in the beginning is that given any surface, let's pretend it's a sphere for now, we partition that surface any way we want. Let's take a look. What Thurston does is we partition the surface in any way we want as long as we observe a very simple condition. First, we place a polygon, we place a polygon, any kind of polygon you want, on each of the zero of the vector field. So around each zero, you place a polygon. It could be a pentagon, it could be a square. It doesn't matter at all. But remember that if you have that vector field on that surface, no vector can lie parallel to an edge of the polygon. So if you're given a sphere, as our example is so far, if you're given a sphere, then no matter what vector field you pick on the sphere, you pick all the zeros, you place a polygon around each one, but make sure the polygon you pick has no edges parallel to it. And if there is an edge parallel to it, just pick a different polygon, and you'll always find one that works. Great, that's my first thing. The second thing is, now that each one of my zeros of my vector field have a polygon around it, kind of protecting it, you look at the rest of the surface and just cut it up into triangles. Just partition it up. Doesn't matter how you partition it. I don't care about the rest of them. My heart is focused around the indices. So you place a polygon here and you partition the rest. Now here's what we do. We place a one on each vertex, a negative one on each edge, and a one in each face of my partition. So all my polygons around my indices get a one. It's great. All my triangles get a one. All my edges everywhere get a negative one. And all my vertices get a one. This has nothing to do with the flow. This is purely on the partition. Now, look what happens when I sum up all these things. Well, if I add up all the vertices, which give a 1, all my edges, which is a negative 1, and all my faces, which is a 1, I get the Euler characteristic, of course. This is exactly how we get the Euler characteristic. And it doesn't matter how I cut the triangles up or how I partition this or which polygons I pick. By our theorems earlier, the Euler characteristic does not depend on the partition. It depends on the surface itself. So now that I have my partition, protecting these indices, and I partitioned things into triangles, I placed my ones along the vertices, my ones, negative ones along the edges, and my protected regions have a one at the center of those faces, and all my triangles have ones at the center of those faces. Here's what we do. Now we bring in our flow. We now flow, we now place the flow on top of our surface. Any flow you want. When we do this, here's what happens. The flow starts to push the values I have on my surface around. Here's what I want to do. 
I want to push the value 1 at each vertex. Remember, each vertex, there's a 1 there. Uh, my flow has to push my vertex in somewhere, right? My arrow has to be taking that vertex and pushing it in. Well, I want to take my vertex that has value 1 and push it into the face the field points to. Wherever the flow points to, push it into that face again, right? Now, I want to take my value negative 1 that's along each edge. Remember, nothing is parallel to it. All my edges have a flow going perpendicular to it somehow. I want to take, or not parallel, it doesn't have to be perpendicular. I want to push the value negative 1 at an edge into the face the field points there. Now, consider each triangle. Notice there are two cases. There are two ways flows can come into a triangle. Since the triangles have no fixed point in them, remember, all my fixed points are protected by these polygons. My triangles have no fixed point in there. So the flow that's coming in has to get out. So one way that can happen is two flows can come into a triangle along two edges and can leave along one edge. Or a flow can come in along one edge and leave along two. Remember, nothing can stay in the middle. So it can flow in two in and one out, or one in and two out. It's great. So what happens? Well, if you look at the first case, when two comes in and one goes out, then the negative one along this edge gets pushed in, the negative one along this edge gets pushed in, and the one at this tip vertex gets pushed in, but everything else gets pushed out. So we only have those three values. So I have that one value of given to the center of that polygon, because it's a face. That's not moving anywhere. The face sticks there. And then a negative one and a negative one from this edge and the one from this vertex. I look at the total sum, I get zero. So this triangle gives me zero value towards anything. Well, what about my other triangle where that one comes in two splits? Well, the one coming in gets that negative one for that edge, but since everything else is leaving, nothing gives me anything else. So thus I have a negative one for this edge and a one at the center. So my total is zero. Thus the sum of all values in any triangle based on the flow is zero. And each polygon, which contains that fixed point that I protected, is exactly the index of the zero I calculated. Remember the indices that we talked about using the polygonal method? This is exactly how we find those indices. So what happens? I place these numbers, the ones negative ones and ones all over my polygon based on Euler characteristic. And the sum of the count one way gives me the Euler characteristic. But the flow does not introduce new numbers, nor does it delete new numbers. It just moves it around by the flow. And all my triangles are zero valued, but all the flow concentrates my Euler characteristic values into these polygons, where the source or the sink or the dipole have these attractions, but those values are exactly the indices. So that's it. That's the theorem itself. That's the total sum in one count is the sum of the indices, but this is just the Euler characteristic in disguise. And we have the following immediate consequence. If we're on a sphere with Euler characteristic 2, there must be at least two, excuse me, there must be at least one zero in any vector field on the sphere, since something must be contributing to the index. Alternatively, using our wind flow formulation, there's always a location on Earth with no wind. There has to be, because the sum of the indices must be the Euler characteristic, which is two. Moreover, if a vector field on a surface has no zeros, then the surface must be a torus. But the Poincaré-Hoff theorem tells us more. If there happens to be a cyclone somewhere on Earth, we see this is a fixed point of index one, it's the center. But the Poincaré-Hoff theorem says that there must be another fixed point somewhere also, because you need to add up to two. So if you have a cyclone, there's something else going on that's going to give you a sum of two. Indeed, the Poincaré-Hoff theorem 
cares only about the homeomorphism type of the surface. Consider this figure. Here we see examples of uh, wind flows on the surface of a sphere or the surface of this tangled up torus. In both cases, if you count the indices of the sphere to be one and one, negative one in the middle and two at one in the bottom, the sum is two. And this complicated torus, which is just a torus tangled up, it'll give you one and one at the points at the top, negative one and negative one in the center, negative one and negative one at the bottom, and one and one, it gives you zero. These gradient flows, or any flows you can think of, regardless of the shape, is based on the homeomorphism type of the surface itself. This is something mathematics does. What we did was related vector fields to the zeros. Instead of trying to solve a problem about just how flows work on a sphere, we generalized to a harder problem and come up with an answer that does far more. I hope you join me next time as we push our ideas of surfaces even more in talking about curvature. See you then.